and Jesus' own people would get in line behind him and follow after him and live with the kind of loving, cross-shaped, self-giving, self-authenticating kind of authority that Jesus himself exercised, then I think there just might be hope for this world and its problems. I might even dare to believe that the call of Jesus to his twelve and to you is no joke. And we all together might dare to believe then in the authority that Jesus possesses and in the mission that he authorizes and in the salvation that he promises. Well, you know, sometimes you learn stuff over the years, right? <laughs> hey, thank you guys. Man, what a, what a day. This has just been a gift, uh, as, has, as it has been a gift to be among you this last decade and a half. I'm not worthy of it, and I'm so grateful for all of your love and um, I got a lot of sympathy for Jeff, who had to come up here after everything Angie said about Amy. I, I was thinking, what did I do for the last 15 years? Like, <laughs> and that was part-time. I mean, I should have got something. Wow. Yeah, anyway. Hey, uh, let me start here. Uh, a couple months back, I was helping to lead one of my favorite things. That's something I love that I get to do or have gotten to do, which was to lead the catalyst groups that we have a couple times a year that serve as just a real foundational kind of disciple-making environment, foundations for the Christian faith. It's our membership group. It's preparation for baptism for both babies and children and for adults. And it's just a, a grounding in what it means to follow Jesus. And in one of those sessions, I was teaching about how to read the Bible and how, in what way it is that the Bible applies to our lives. And I, I shared with them a story of how I used to read the Bible wrong. And I think it's one of the things that keeps us from reading the Bible well is that we come to it with the wrong expectations. And, and I did this when I was, uh, when God got a hold of my life, when Jesus really gave me new life in a new way when I was a teenager. And I started reading the Bible for myself for the first time with interest and eagerness and wondering, what will I learn here? And I want to apply this to my life. I'm ready to, I'm ready to apply this, obey this. I need some direction. And I opened the Bible and started reading it for the first time. And I read there about like sheep and Pharisees and stuff, and it just didn't give me the direction I was looking for. You know, I, I wanted to know, should I play on the basketball team again this year, or should I try out for the spring play, you know? Or what courses should I take next semester? What college should I go to? What relationship decisions should I make? And it, I'd close, I'd read it, and I'd close it and go, I still don't know, you know? And so that became a barrier, like maybe do I even want to read it anymore? Is it going to help me? I realized I was bringing the wrong expectations. Over the years, I've come to realize that the Bible and applying the Bible to our lives is much more about a process of long-term formation. That following Jesus and learning to apply our lives to the Bible is more about what kind of person am I becoming and less about finding little individual commandments or directives that will apply in a detailed way to the decisions that I make. And what I said in the group there was, it's more about learning to live with a biblical imagination for life. And one of the very smart people in that group, in a little Q&A session, wrote down, they wrote down some questions, and somebody wrote down and asked, what is a biblical imagination for life? Like, what do you mean by that? And when they asked that terrific question, I realized that I knew what I meant by that, but I didn't actually know how to explain it very well. I've been thinking about that for a couple months since that question. And today, what I want to leave you with is 
a rough, inadequate attempt at answering that question. It'll be really just the beginning, honestly. This is, well, I'll tell you in a second. In, in many ways, this is a return to where I started among you nearly 15 years ago. When I first came here in 2004, I began teaching a Bible study program called Disciple Bible Study. And this Bible study, the idea was that we would learn how the Bible fits together as a whole, like one big picture, more than just little individual episodes and snippets and principles and predictions that all come out of some encyclopedia or something, but rather that we would learn the story, you know, that we would learn how it hangs together. And here's the key, that we would learn that it's a story that we are a part of, right? And when you learn this story and learn to see the world with new eyes from within a new story, what happens is something that I would call a conversion of the imagination. And as, as we learn to follow Jesus, I've come to believe that our conversion is progressive, that we experience a number of conversions over the course of our lives. Maybe most familiarly, maybe, maybe most obvious, we, kind of, we experience a conversion of our hearts. And God sets our hearts free. He moves us from guilt to forgiveness, right? from fear to freedom. And we experience a conversion of our desires and our wills in our hearts. Pastor Magnuson, who was the senior pastor here for many years, many years ago, I have heard it said that he described that there was a conversion of our wallets in the Christian life. In fact, he said the conversion of our wallets was usually the last part of our lives to be converted and the first part to be deconverted if we ever leave. I think there's also a conversion of the imagination. That as we follow Jesus and we read the Bible, we learn to see things differently and to put the pieces of life together in a different, and I would dare to say better and more hopeful way. And I think that what this means, to answer that wonderful question, is learning to ask the basic questions of life out loud, which often we don't do very reflectively anyway, and then learning profoundly different answers to those basic questions of life. So these are the questions, if we could put those up on the screen back here. If, you've got, if, if you take notes, if you're a note taker, you a pen or pencil, you might want to jot those down or tap them into your phone or even snap a picture if that's the easiest thing for you. I'm going to spend the rest of the time that I've got here today going over these questions with you. Shouldn't take more than 75 or 90 minutes probably to get through. <laughs> I'm just kidding. These questions, who do you come from? What's the problem you have to solve? Who's on your team? What does success look like? And what power do you have to overcome those problems, to collaborate with your team, to reach what success looks like? And... I've only got this one sermon left to give here. In fact, years ago, it was like when I first came here, somebody gave me a book. The, the author of the book, his last name was Turnbull. I don't know his first name. I don't remember. And the title of the book was, If I Only Had One Sermon Left to Preach. Right? You might wish I'd read that book. I haven't read a book yet. Right? <laughs> what we're going to do, since I only have this one sermon left, is I want to give you something to go on thinking about for a long time. So I'm going to take a running start at each of these questions, just a couple, few minutes on each of them. As a, as a beginning to those answers of what it means to live with a biblical imagination and let you continue to run with those into the future. So first one, who do you come from? Who do you come from? It's part of our story. I come from blue-collar immigrants and coal miners who took care of business, that kept their heads down, their noses clean, they got their jobs done, they provided for their families, and they put in a good day's work and they put in another one before bed. 
These are the people I come from. And I learned great things from this background. It's not a bad kind of place to be from. I also, though, when I look at my own life, realize that I misapplied some of the lessons that I learned from my background, that I embraced some of my people's blind spots, right? We all come from somewhere, and sometimes we come from big challenges. Some of you may know what it's like to be the child of an alcoholic parent. You may come from a broken or abusive family. You may face all kinds of challenges. You may have big hills to climb. And you maybe have climbed them to great heights. Or maybe not yet. But we all come from somewhere. Do you know who else is in our family? You guys ever heard the story of our great Aunt Esther? I mean, she's amazing. She had so much courage that she challenged a king. She was objectified and not taken seriously as a woman in her culture. Something we struggle too much with still today. But she is so brave. She risked her life to speak truth and to stand up for our people. And she's in our family. I don't know if you've ever been afraid of anything. You have any fear in life. Are you ever not taken seriously for some reason that isn't even your fault? Man, you ought to know that you come from a people of godly courage. That's who you come from. Have you ever heard the story of our great-grandpa David? Do you, do you know that name? That guy was a screw-up. Actually, he was a royal screw-up. He was a king, as a matter of fact. He made some terrible choices in life. Really embarrassed himself. But he got back up again. Because he trusted in God's incredible grace. There's terrific stories about that. I don't, can't share with you today. And he embraced his second chance. That's your grandpa. That's our family. Have you ever blown it? I mean, really made a dumb choice. Embarrassed yourself. Put your life on the wrong course. You know what we do in this family when that happens? First of all, we own it. We tell the truth about it. David wrote some tremendous prayers of confession that are found in the Psalms to this day. We own it. And then we trust in God's grace that is beyond imagination. And then we move on. Who else, who do you come from? If you were thinking about your natural background, tell me, who do you think you come from? Think about that for a second. Now let me tell you that above and beyond that, you have a family that you probably barely know. You're scratching the surface, really. Get to know them. Read their stories. Hear them in worship. You come from incredible people. This is just 1% of the answer that I'm giving you. The more you learn, the more your imagination will be enriched. Who do you come from? What's the problem you have to solve? You know, what's the threat that's facing your life? What is, the, what is the thing that could go wrong, the threat that hangs over you, that if you don't evade it or solve it or bear up under it, it could kind of wreck your future. It could kind of wreck your life. And you guys see the Han Solo movie? Did you see Solo? We went last week and Tuesday night. Maybe it was two weeks ago. I don't even know where it came out. No spoilers, I, I promise. But Han Solo got separated from his girlfriend on Karelia, and he's broke, and he's being hunted by bad guys. That's his problem. You ever heard of Frodo? Do you guys know who Frodo is, Lord of the Rings? Frodo got stuck with a ring he shouldn't have had. He has to walk all the way to Mordor to throw it in a volcano without getting captured by the dark side. Or is that Star Wars? The ring rates, right? <laughs> That's his problem, right? There's something hanging over our lives that threatens to derail or wreck our lives. What's the threat or the problem or the conflict that you have to solve? For a lot of us, we organize the energies of our lives, our thought life, our time, our work, 
like the big threat in our lives is financial scarcity. That's the big one. We've just got to get the bills paid. We've got to get enough saved up to retire or to retire early. And that's the big problem we're trying to solve. Maybe it's something more like lack of respect, like insignificance, like you haven't made your mark in the world and not enough people know your name and not mattering is the problem that you face. Could be a hundred different things. What's the big problem you think that hangs over your life in the way you understand it? It could wreck you if you don't solve it. In the story of the Bible, the big problem is that we don't know God anymore. That we got sideways with God and we got separated from God. This is our problem. That we were made to know God, love God, and serve God in God's world. And instead, we're afraid of God, avoid God, and rebel against God. And until your God problem is solved, you can solve everything else in life and not get your problem solved. Think about it this way. I don't mean to cause any flashbacks for any students, college students, high school students who are here, but like we just had graduation right before that was finals week, right? So imagine, I'm sorry, that it's finals week again. Imagine you've got 90 minutes, you walk into the exam room, you pick up a copy of the test, you sit down, it's got this monster of a problem on it, you apply yourself to it, you think about it carefully, you work it through, you back up when you make a mistake, you go down, you get to the end, you've got a couple minutes left, you check your work, you're pretty confident, you got the thing right, you walk up, you hand it in with confidence, you put it in the basket, only to realize you picked up the wrong test on the way in. And you solved it right, you got the right answer to the wrong question. You were right, but about the wrong thing. And what if you did that with your life? Just take a few seconds right now and think about this. What is that big problem that you feel like your life is organized to solve? The big conflict, if, if your life was a novel or a movie, what's the big conflict that you have to get through or get over or it's gonna wreck your story? What if you're spending most of your time solving an actual problem, it is a real problem, it's just not the right one, or it's not the biggest one. Who do you come from? What's the big problem you gotta solve? Who's on your team? This is a tricky one. You know, in most stories, there are people who are all on the same side, they're on the same team. Like, I'm kinda losing track of which superheroes are which now, but if you were an Avenger, I think your team would be Iron Man, Captain America, Black Widow too, Hulk, I think is on your team, right? You're the good guys, and there are bad guys in that story. We're in a story, and we have teammates, right? We have people to whom we are loyal. We have loyalties. We have allegiances. We have a group that we call family that may often be biological family and it may be bigger than that. What I've seen is that outside of a biblical imagination, we might construct our teams in a whole bunch of different ways. We might think, people would sometimes think of their team, their primary community, your first team, as being your nuclear family or your extended family. Blood is thicker than water and all that kind of thing. Some people think of their primary team and their primary concern as being their country or their nationality. And people who aren't them are kind of on the other side, on the outside. Some people find their primary identity, their primary tribe and their political party, left or right. Sometimes it's a sports team, right? Would you ever set foot in Green Bay if you weren't from there? Do you remember how, some of you certainly would, I understand. Yeah, we're divided around here. 
Do you remember how many Minnesotans felt about the Eagles fans in Philadelphia around the NFC Championship game? We felt like they had betrayed some loyalty to the human family by the way they treated other people. People with a biblical imagination understand that their primary team is the body of Christ on earth, from every nationality, from every gender, from every socioeconomic level, that other Christians are our brothers and our sisters. And everybody else is not the bad guys. We don't have those. Everybody else is worthy of love and prayer and concern. We learned this last week. Remember, we love the world with the love of God because God so loved the world. And yet it's Jesus who makes us family. And not anything else does that. Jesus himself said that one time. He was gathered, he was doing some teaching, and people came to him and said, hey, your mother and brother are outside and they want to see you. And Jesus, not to insult his family, but to teach a larger lesson, asked the question. He was always asking questions, right? Who are my mother and my brothers? And then he said, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Whoever does the will of God. The Apostle Paul said the same thing when he wrote a letter to the Christians in Galatia. In a verse that we really hardly ever read, it's in Galatians chapter 6, he exhorted the church there. He said, let us do good to all people and especially to the household of God. And he used this word that means household or family and said, this is like your household right here. There was a, a Christian, a famous Christian leader and thinker, a writer, a theologian who lived in the middle of the 20th century. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may know his name or maybe have even read some of the stuff he wrote. He was a leader in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. He was an opponent of the Nazis. He saw right through the problems with that. He was a scholar. He won a fellowship to study in the United States in New York. And he kind of got rescued by that fellowship. He got safety and he came to the United States as things were getting terrible. He was an opponent of Hitler. It's not safe to be an opponent of Hitler in Germany in those days. But he realized while he was in the U.S. that God was calling him to be a leader among his people and he wanted to be part of the recovery and the witness to Christ in Germany after the great fall that he foresaw was coming. So he went back to Germany in the late 30s or early 40s. He went back in the middle of it and he was part of the resistance to Hitler. And then as an opponent to the Nazis, he was arrested and hanged in April of 1945. But during his life, he taught some fellow Christians, he taught fellow German Christians that he said, I could never serve in the military for my country. Because you know what would happen? I would have to go out onto the battlefields and I would have to shoot and kill other Christians who happened to be from the United States or from France merely out of loyalty to that which is merely my country of Germany. And that would betray my primary allegiance. He said, how could I do that? It's a really challenging question to ask. And you'll probably wind up applying the answer to this question to your life in different ways, in different contexts, and maybe less dramatic ways than he did. But the question is still there. Who's on your team? Who's your family? Where are your loyalties? Whom will you serve? Who's your team? Fourth, what does success look like? What's the goal? What's it look like at the end? What's the win? This is a powerful one for how it shapes our lives. And it's powerful in the stories that we learn and hear and the stories that we tell and even the stories that we as a culture tell our children and pass on to the next generation. Let me give you just one example of this. In the movies that we watch, in the movies that I grew up watching, I remember learning or noticing that it used to be a happy ending if two people got married at the end of the story. You're like, oh yeah, good, it all worked out. And the movies even kind of manipulated your emotions to root for that. And our imaginations were thereby trained to think 
that romantic love and marriage were the goals of a successful life. That somehow this is what constitutes a happy ending, a successful story. And sometimes now in the very same genres of movie, it might still be marriage at the end. It might just be hooking up with somebody. And this too shapes our goals, our views of the goal. In other movies, it's different. In other movies, a happy ending is when the bad guy gets killed by the good guy. Or at least gets captured. Or when the person who was wronged at the beginning exacts their terrible revenge over everybody else. And we go, that's success. That's what it looks like in the stories that we tell. Hmm. What about parenting? For those of you who are parents, let me ask you, in your mind, complete this sentence. I just want my kids to be happy, busy, well-rounded, responsible. How about in your career, in your work life? What would success look like after you give 10, 20, 40 plus years? I succeeded in the labor that I had to give. What constitutes that? You know, in the biblical story, the happy ending of the big story from Genesis to Revelation is the healing of all creation and the reformation of trustworthy relationships between people and God and among people. Human beings trust God again. People live in peace and harmony with one another. The nations are no longer at war with one another. The tree of life grows in the garden again and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. That's the happy ending in the biblical story of the world. And I think people now, followers of Jesus, who develop a biblical imagination will start to pursue these very same kinds of things in our own smaller stories that are components of the larger story. We will learn to trust God and the character of God that has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus. We'll love people, we'll foster justice, we'll make peace and heal the broken. Followers of Jesus who develop a biblical imagination will feel successful when their little corner of the world looks like an overlap of Jesus and the Garden of Eden, like somehow that's what it will look like. Let me ask you to think about what your life is aiming for. Take a couple seconds. What is it that you are trying to accomplish? What is it that you want to come out of your life? What dent do you want to make? What is the success that you are working for in life? Is it big enough? Is it worthy of your one precious life in the presence of the Spirit of God on the face of this earth? Does it look anything like God's success? Or are you writing a different story? What does success look like? And finally, and you can be glad that it's finally, <laughs> what power do you have? What, if you were a superhero, what superpower do you have to bring about this success? to collaborate with your teammates, to overcome the conflicts that you face. When I say the word power in this world, I think there's a certain set of obvious things that come to mind for people. Physical strength, the ability to overpower something or somebody. Maybe physical strength writ large into weapons, police forces, armies. We think about laws and governments, that's a lot of power. In democracies, we think about exercising our power by our ability to participate in the machine of government. We have lots of power. These are all real powers in the world. But a biblical imagination imagines that there is a power greater than the powers of this world. That there is the power of the Holy Spirit of God. 
that there is the power of self-offering sacrificial love, that there is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes Christians, as they grow in the way of Jesus, will have eyes to see power where the world only sees weakness. The Apostle Paul said that God's power was made perfect where he was weak, that that's where God was at work. He wrote in another place that it was in the cross, in the cross of Jesus, God chose the weak and shameful things of the world to shame the strong and the wise and the powerful, that this is where the power of God is unleashed, that there is a power of God at work in the world that the world simply knows nothing about. And Christians work by the power of the Spirit in the way of the cross And God does the impossible. What power do you trust? You know, when the stakes are high, when the chips are down, when your life matters, when the condition of the world matters, what power do you trust in to get things done? As I prepared this message for today and thought about what it would be to have a converted imagination, I was reminded of a central passage in Philippians chapter 2. It's the, a central passage for the reading of the New Testament, I think. And it was written by Pastor Paul, again, the Apostle Paul. Think of him as Pastor Paul, writing letters to congregations, founding churches, forming communities. He thought and wrote a lot about how to live Christianly in a whole variety of difficult circumstances. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, he gave those Christians in ancient Philippi a piece of advice. Have the mind of Christ among you. Be of the same mindset as Jesus. And then he said what he meant by that. And I want to just read this to you for a second. This is Philippians 2. I'll read the next few verses after that. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I could live the rest of my life with that as a pretty decent goal. The same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. This is already a converted imagination. Isn't it our culture's imagination to take whatever privilege or asset you have and use it to your advantage? Not to forfeit it for somebody else, but that's exactly what Jesus did. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus engaged in this dramatic downward trajectory because he trusted in the power of God. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. He took away his shame and gave him a name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And people would have their greatest God problems solved. Our relationship with God would be restored. We'd be unified together into a team, into the family of God by the power of God. To be apprenticed to Jesus, to be discipled to Jesus, is, I think, to learn his imagination for life. So let me close with just a really simple and quick story. It's a story I learned just last Sunday. Our worship team, volunteers, staff, everybody who puts together what happens on Sunday morning, we're gathered together 
to get on the same page and go over the worship plans. And Dan Lugo, our worship leader, shared a little story about Benedict Cumberbatch. You guys know who that is, the, the British actor? Played a whole variety of roles, including some pretty cool heroes. He's a pretty good guy from what I know, which is basically nothing because I don't follow stars, so throw that away. Apparently, Benedict Cumberbatch was riding to dinner with his wife. I think it was his wife. They were riding in an Uber. And out the window of the car, he sees a guy getting jumped. It's a bicycle delivery guy who has got a takeout food order that somebody has called in, and he is bicycling a takeout dinner order to somebody else's house. And four guys jump the delivery bicycleman because they want to steal his bicycle from him. And Benedict Cumberbatch tells the Uber driver to stop the car, and he jumps out of the car and starts pulling the guys off of the bicycle rider, right? And he's ducking punches, and the driver comes over too and basically doesn't help at all. But Benedict Cumberbatch, like, pulls these guys off, and they probably recognize who he is, and they don't want to wind up in the newspaper, so they start to run away, right? Why do you think he did that? Maybe it's because that's what superheroes do, <laughs> Because he'd been rehearsing that scene over and over again, and he had formed the mind of a hero. And this is what Dan was telling us about worship, that we become what we rehearse. What I see here is that as our imaginations get reconfigured by what we read in the scriptures, that as, as you read and rehearse and recite the story of God and the scriptures centered in Jesus Christ, it's the kind of thing that just starts to come out again even when you're not even trying. And I think that's how we learn the Bible and apply it to our lives. That you read it. Here in worship together, we read it and we learn it and we discuss it in our growth groups and hear it taught and explained. We read it, we learn it, we, we find out how the whole story hangs together. You, you catch the drift of it. And by it, God rearranges your mental furniture. He gives you new pathways for thinking. He converts your imagination and gives you the mind of Christ. God, make it so. Let's pray for that. Good and gracious, almighty, beautiful, amazing God, we thank you for the gift of your word in Scripture we thank you even more for the gift of your word made flesh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who reveals your heart to us and leads us in the way of life. And God, I pray that by your spirit, you would come into our hearts and shape our souls and renew our minds and convert and transform our imaginations. Give us the mind of Christ. Individually conform us to the image of Christ. As a people, work in us till Christ be formed in us. Make us more and more into the image of Jesus, that your church together as a community would be a witness to your goodness and to your power, that the world would see you, that you would, through and in spite of us, draw all people to yourself. We pray in the sweet and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.